This is Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we dive deep into government identification with Professor Ed Santo from the UTS Human Technology Institute. But first, our wrap of the latest in tech news with regular panellists, Digital Rights Watch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. Welcome to Burning Platforms for our first virtual town hall event for 2023. So regular participants know how we run this little session. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the stories that have been getting into our very, very special news aggregation service via the wonderful Amy Denmead. And then we're going to do a deep dive today into the... um, changes in government ID and some of the reforms around government ID that Ed has been part of a hand-picked committee to oversee. So we're going to ask Dan a bit about that and hopefully have a bit of a broader discussion about personal identity and where it should sit and if it should sit anywhere. But before we get into that, I thought I'd kick off today um, talking about the privacy reforms that are currently before the Attorney-General. We've been um, mobilising a bit of a coalition of the willing to to work for the best possible reforms we can um, secure. And Lizzie and Dan and Ed have all been part of that group. And we're hoping to take some of those conversations public over the, the next few months. I had a crack this today of trying to frame this up around getting the government to deal with creepiness, because I'm a little bit concerned that if we just talk about privacy, we lose a lot of people because the privacy frame has kind of been taken over by the idea that if I've done nothing wrong, I've got nothing to hide. Um, I think the idea of being constantly monitored is just weird. And if you started a society from scratch with this as one of the design principles, people would probably be scratching their head about how we got there. I know you, Lizzie, was a bit sceptical about my creepiness frame, but um, how are you desc- how are you describing it to people at dinner parties about what's important and what's not and what's at stake? Uh, Well, I sort of see privacy as kind of fundamental to freedom and I think uh, it's hard to overstate its importance, to be honest, in the digital age uh, because so much of our lives are online. You know, I'm sure if you're listening to this or you're participating in this um, podcast, then you may have some sense of that already. Um, I do think it's been a long journey to get here. That's part of the issue. So, you know, this discussion paper has come out after a year, I think, that it's been with the department. I think we put in our submission in January last year um, about some of the proposed reforms. It's a very broad-ranging report. You know, it's 300-odd pages. It's got a lot of open-ended kind of remarks in there about about what might be... um, uh, possible in terms of reform. And I think the rubber will hit the road when the legislation is drafted and the Attorney General is required to speak to that. And we'll see how some of these proposals actually take form in a legislative proposal. Um, but And before that, it's a little bit hard to say, but I'm kind of, I am still um, excited by the ambition, I suppose. I think there's a lot of ways in which it could have been less ambitious and it, and it hasn't um, met those cynical expectations. I think there's still a lot more to do and there's a lot more possibility there um, for things to uh, be squibbed on that could really undermine its effectiveness. And so part of it, the next month where we're scrambling to respond to it will be trying to identify those items. But, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that this is this is really is a once-in-generation chance to reform privacy. I'm hopeful that some of the bold things will get through and um, I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that we can make some of the bits in the discussion paper even stronger in the eventual uh, um, articulation of the legislative reform. Yeah, Ed, you've been um, a soldier in this battle over many iterations. Um, how does this one stack up and how are you feeling about the prospect of, of landing something meaningful? Look, I mean, I think I think the, 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 the comment that Lizzie just made a moment ago about it being a once-in-a-generation opportunity is, is really important and it's, it needs to be understood very literally. Um, the legislation that we have now that is meant to protect our privacy was was largely drafted a generation ago um, in the 80s. And, you know, it was prior to the birth of the internet in any kind of meaningful way, um, prior to, you know, companies hoovering up all of our personal information and, and government agencies for that matter. And yes, there have been some changes along the way, but that just hasn't kept up. Um, we've got this really clunky old um, statute that is doing a really poor job 
of keeping our privacy protected. And so, um, yeah, I've been part of some of those reform processes uh, over the last 15 years. There have been a lot of reform processes um, because I think the easy thing for government to do is just to create another review. Um, and so by some counts, there's been eight major reviews in the last 15 years. Um, and they're mostly, um, that, that mostly have really good recommendations that go nowhere, um, completely unimplemented or largely unimplemented. What, what this does is two things. Um, first is it, it makes a genuine effort to draw together the different strands from the last 15 years and pick the eyes out of what's best and what's most necessary in 2023. So that's really useful, really important. Um, the second is it acknowledges that this is a crucial moment. Um, so government has a choice here. If, if it's going to grasp the nettle, um, it's going to have to, you know, accept that there'll be some um, uh, big, powerful interests that they'll upset. Um, uh, but but in doing so, they'll be on the side of the angels because the rest of us, the, the community in Australia, um, need that nettle to be grasped. Um, so it's not, not without political risk. And so. I guess to get to the nub of your question, Faith, I um, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, but um, you have to be an optimist to be a human rights lawyer, and so um, I am also conscious that you know we've got to close to this point in the past, and it's all fallen over. Well, as a member of um, one of the big powerful interests, Dan, without wanting to put you on the spot, how do you see these changes, and how do you think? they are going to be received over the next little period? Uh, look, we're still making our way through uh, the 300-plus pages of the report and firming our position on this. But I think I can say in the in the meantime, you know, we're very supportive of, of privacy reform in Australia. Um, it's obviously needed for the reasons that Ed and Lizzie have just explained. But, you know, the fundamental sort of idea behind this or fundamental problem behind this is that, the privacy regime we have in place is for an offline world and everything that we do online is tracked, So, uh, or almost everything. So we need to put some guardrails in place. I mean, the analogy that I often draw for people that aren't necessarily interested in privacy is just imagine that everything you do in the offline world is tracked and surveilled and then not just that, but then used to sell you either target advertising or manipulate your behaviour. Would you be comfortable with that? And people always say no, and that's effectively what is happening to a large part of our digital lives. And so, therefore, it obviously needs to be updated. I mean, I think that that everybody, almost everybody, would agree with that, uh, and we certainly do. So, um, as I said, we're still sort of firming our position, but there's two there's two parts of this which I think make make uh, abundant sense. So, the first one is, as part of this reform, they're proposing to broaden the definition of personal information to effectively include the data that is collected about individuals when they're online. Um, that makes sense. It brings us up to adequacy with GDPR. Um, and it also acknowledges that uh, data that is inferred about people from, from uh, what they do online is also highly personal and sensitive and needs to be protected. That makes sense. We're very supportive of that. The other thing is that there's a proposed fair and reasonableness test, which was also in our submission to, to the um, AG uh, some months ago or in both of our submissions. Um, this has two potential benefits. You know, firstly, data collection that is fair and reasonable does not necessarily require consent, except when you're collecting sensitive data. And this should go some way to reducing the burden on consumers of consenting to complex privacy policies that, that very few bother to read. If, if data collection is fair and reasonable, you shouldn't have to ask for consent. It should just be uh, allowed in our view. Um, but secondly, it also means that data collection processes that aren't fair and reasonable can simply be outlawed. They can be no-go zones. And that should go some way to, I think, restricting the really invasive data protection or data collection practices that, that take place, particularly in the online advertising industry. So look, we're supportive of those two things. They're both central to what the government is proposing to do. We'll figure out the rest of uh, things that are in there as well, because we do have some mm. concerns as well. But I'll, I'll leave it on the positive for now. So clearly there's 320 pages. That's a lot of um, policy for anyone to get through. Lizzie and Ed, quickly, is there anything in there that is kind of stands out as really important to land? I'm very supportive of um, a direct right of action. So I think it's um been something that has been missing from the privacy legislation for the for a long time. You've you've not able to been able to bring a complaint to a court. You've had to go through a regulator, and I think the time is right to change that. And I think it is possibly a reform. Certainly, if we look at the US example, where privacy reform has been introduced at state level, state levels, but also 
there's now a proposal federally. It's been something that the industry does not like, and I think they don't like it because it is powerful. Um, and uh, so I'm, I think that's a very important development. Obviously, the recommendation that goes with that, cause of action for breaches of the Australian privacy principles is one aspect. There's also a statutory tort for serious invasion of privacy that's proposed. And I think that's in a similar vein that it's slightly different. Um, so those things I think are important. And it's not as though they're particularly um, novel. You know, the statutory cause of action has been kicking around for, for decades and many reviews have looked at this issue. But, um, you know, so I'm, I'm a bit like Ed, I'm a bit nervous that we've come this far and we still may lose out on it. But it would be a, a huge step forward, in my opinion, if we got both those things. Yeah, and Henry concurs, which is good. Um, Ed, um Facial recognition technology gets um, a special mention there as well. Do you just want to flag that before we move on? Yeah, well, it it, it does say it. So we, we um, came up with the model law last year and um, I guess what they've said is there, there'd be a really good way of integrating um, our proposed model law into the Privacy Act, um, which we're very supportive of. Um, but they also said, look, we we haven't quite finished our homework on this, so um, we really need the public to let us know. And that that that's actually one thing, and that's a boring process point, but it's really crucial. It's very unusual. So this is the Attorney General who tasked um, his own department to do this review. Um, and it was the previous Attorney General, the Benelito, two years ago that, that, that it was started. But it's his own department that has come up with this report. Um, it's been published. Uh, but um, what, what he's not saying is, I'm backing in all of these changes. He's saying the public has one last chance to tell us whether these changes are supported or opposed. Um, and I think there's a really good reason why they're doing that. He wants to know um, that if he's going into a big fight with some bad guys, that he's going to have the Australian community behind him. Um, and so we've all got until the end of this month to let the government know what our views are. So if, if you do care about stronger privacy protections, um, it's really easy. Um, a submission doesn't have to be like a 320-page, you know, trying to match what, what the government has put, put out. You can simply say, we back in these proposals, that's it. <laughs> or you can say, oh, I've had a read through, don't really understand some of it, but they, these are the things that are really important to me. So facial recognition, as you say, um, it is really important because that was something that was never contemplated when the legislation was drafted. Uh, and it's something that can have a profoundly life-changing negative effect if it's not properly regulated. So we need that stuff. Yeah. Um, and there'll be much more coming out on all our networks, I think, over the next little period to give people the opportunity to be heard on that. Um, moving on to other issues that have piqued our interest. Lizzie, you've been crocheting. Tell us all about it. Oh, this is a nice little story in The Guardian. Thanks, Dan, about people who've asked ChatGPT for crochet patterns of various things and then um, they crochet the result. And so there's a uh, just a glorious picture of um, uh, a crocheted item that someone uh, has created following um, a pattern that was given by ChatGPT in response to a request for a narwhal. Um, and it's adorable, but it's clearly got nothing to do with a narwhal really in any meaningful sense. Um, and yeah, it's just occurred to me that, you know, we've talked about ChatGPT Chat since it came out the end of last year about its various uses, but it's really now starting to gain traction in terms of uh, industry starting to experiment with how they might be able to use it. You know, so there's been articles about like coals implicating, integrating it into their their internal systems, uh, other big businesses um, like Telstra and the like, you know, and you can see how it might have utility in terms of marketing and stuff like that, writing copy, writing speeches. There was a really interesting uh, comment from someone in the media who ran a boat business who said that um, he asked ChatGP what was the 20 most common terms people use when they're looking for a boat. And that is obviously information that someone like Google, for example, would have uh, had in its possession and and add to its um, utility as an advertiser. But um, now you can kind of do that yourself as a small business. So it is really interesting to think about what you can learn. Um, I mean, there's obviously, there's also other (laughs) problems with ChatGPT. You know, there's, there's, I think, legitimate concerns about its potential to automate parts of our human life that ought not be automated. Um, And, you know, there's all this stuff around, for example, um, uses in university and academic settings. But also, like, there's a question around whether we want to necessarily model a chatbot on um, 
on pre-existing text that that existed on the internet until I think it was September last year and, and what that says about the world. And interestingly, um, Kevin Roos from the New York Times did a two-hour interview with Bing, which was uh, the Microsoft product powered by ChatGPT, so looking at a new format for search and got into a really creepy pickle with um with the chatbot, um, where eventually the chatbot declared its love for Kevin, asked Kevin to leave his wife and would not stop saying that. <laughs> um, and it's pretty full-on read. Like they've published the full transcript. And in some ways I sort of understand where it might come from. I'm not smart enough to understand what actually gave rise to that conversation. But, you know, if an internet is dominated by kind of romance love stories, I can also understand how a, how a chatbot might learn from that and sort of seek to apply it in, in a conversation with someone who's real. But um, the way that the conversation transpires is pretty creepy and you do sort of wonder what is the capability here and how you could actually plan to limit those kinds of excesses. I don't know that it's really possible and we might be in uncharted territory in that respect. So that's only a sample version of being chatbot being searched power by chat GPT, it's only been offered to a few different journalists but wow. eventually it will become more widely available and i'll be curious to see what kinds of problems it, emerge. It's, it, it feels full-on joachim phoenix in her um where you fall in love with your personal organizer so maybe the problem was just that it was unrequited i've been <laughs> i've been using it for research i i um did a column for guardian last week on the thesis that interest rates for labor's kryptonite and i wanted to just do some research on when superman had conquered kryptonite and i put a call out to my staff was anyone a superman fan and someone put it into chat gtp and it was a beautiful reference level of every interaction with kryptonite but also with an interpretation at the end that basically said ultimately kryptonite was um, a dramatic device because if you've got no powers you need something to push back or it limits your powers you need something to limit your power which um i was did you use that in the article? That's quite a. Quite I, I stole. Yeah, I did. I, it kind of gave me um, a lot to work with. Um, so, Dan, um, you've almost got your columnists writing through ChatGPT, or at least doing their <laughs> research. Um, we've seen what the schools are trying to do to to sort of try to sort of say, um, we'll catch you if you use this tool. But are you looking at it in terms of a tool or a, or a threat to journalism at the moment? I mean, look, we're not, we have absolutely no plans on using um, chat in our journalism. Uh, it's not my area of the business either, I should say. So I'll probably leave a comment on that to to our mm. editors. Um, but, you know, as an observation, other people in the industry are doing this and, you know, not with very good results, I think we should say as well. I mean, there's been a few examples of uh, uh, CNET and the like who have, who have written articles written by or published articles written by ChatGPT. Uh, that have been, um, you know, full of factual inaccuracies and errors, and it's caused them a whole bunch of issues. So I think, look, my hunch is we'll solve those over time. And, you know, we spoke about this, I think, at the end of last year at, at our event. I, I think my hunch is that we're going to get to a point where the more vanilla journalism just updating on the day's events without the analysis and commentary is probably something which um, some publishers will make use of to to uh, automate and, and and increase their output. That might be a good thing, but the, the downside is that, you know, it can go wrong and it can be inaccurate. What's been fascinating, though, I, I mean, look, the whole world's talking about this. Um, there's no new observation from me here, but I've, I've got two questions which have come up in light of uh, what Lizzie was talking about earlier and the, the conversation that um, uh, was published in the New York Times. And, and there's been a few other examples that have been similar as well. Uh, the first question is, did Microsoft do a bad job of writing the rules which govern Bing Chat or, or the Sydney persona? Or is it simply impossible to write foolproof rules for artificial intelligence? And my suspicion, I think, is uh, in accordance with what you said earlier, Lizzie, which is is probably the latter. And the concern that follows from that is then, or the second question is, what happens when someone who is less responsible than Microsoft or Google starts releasing these things into the wild that have far more relaxed rules or no rules at all? I, I think there has been reports that Elon Musk is looking on doing this just as one example of where this could go uh, in a potentially very dark direction. So I don't think we've really seen how bad this can get yet. I think it's going to get, I think it's going to get far worse over the coming months. And then the last thing I'd say is it's more of an observation. We've spoken about this and a lot of people have spoken about this in the context of search. It may, to, to my mind, what the applications of this have been, it's not search, it's it's basically entertainment in a completely new and novel form. Um and I suspect it is going to come to resemble what you said before, Peter. It's going to come to resemble sort of the the, the science fiction film Her 
you know, with a version of of sultry, um, Scarlett Johansson's sultry voice talking uh, talking back at us, and people will be using it in very creepy uh, ways for entertainment, in and probably far earlier than I think any of us thought was possible even a year ago. Uh, that seems like it's coming in the next few years rather than wow. in the next few decades. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Ed, if only there was someone setting up an academic institution to think through these thorny <laughs> issues. Um, is this on your radar? I know you've got a pretty full book, yeah. but doesn't this blow up quite a few of the projects that are already rolling out in terms of AI? Oh, look, it's good in one sense in that we've been doing quite a bit of work behind the scenes um, on uh, some of the technology that is at the heart of this, including natural language processing, um, some machine learning um, techniques. Um, and what this does is that it makes me slightly less boring at dinner parties, maybe, or, you know, whatever. Like, it's people are actually starting to talk about it. Um, and uh, but, but the science is actually quite complicated and it's really important to kind of understand it. So I keep on, at the moment, reaching for analogies. So let me give you a couple um, that might help you understand it a bit. So I've got a three-year-old. I mean, I've got lots and lots of children but but one of them is three um and he has this really strange uh strange thing that he's going through at the moment which is that he'll always give you an answer right it, it, it doesn't matter if he doesn't even understand the question he'll always give you an answer and he's quite serious um and so I was asking him the other day um about a uh, legal case um I was, I was actually asking about Marbo um and I said yeah, can you just remind me what what, what, what did Marbo, um, was the decision in Marbo, but, but you know, um, specifically Justice Mason's um, judgment. And he gave me this really serious answer. It was all about um, carrots. Um, so it was completely nonsense. But it was really, really serious. I thought, oh, Is this how you interact with your children? What I'm talking about Marbo yeah. and Justice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've never claimed to be father of the year. I accept that. Um, but then I kind of thought, oh my gosh, this is this is quite quite close to generative AI. This is quite close to uh, to ChatGPT. Um, the difference is actually um, that ChatGPT will answer every question. It won't know the answers to most of the questions um, in any meaningful way. But what it's really good at is giving you plausible answers. It's really good at plausible, really bad at reliable. Um, so let me just try one more analogy mm. at you. So. Imagine you go to uh, see a play um, and there's an actor performing the role of a doctor and she does a really, really good job. Like, you know, she it feels just like a, a, what you remember it to be, to be in a doctor's surgery. She has the sort of patter of speech, all of that sort of thing. And she says things that sound very plausible, right? Like she says, well, you know, you've got this, or she says to one of the other actors, you've got these symptoms. I think, you know, the diagnosis is, is this and you should take this particular medicine. That's that's really important. You, you go, well, isn't that a fantastic actor? But if you yourself get sick, you don't go, oh, gosh, let me see if I can get the name of that actor because, you know, she'll give me really good medical advice. You would go to an actual doctor. Um, and that is, that's, I think, well, at least for me, it's been a useful analogy because what is truly amazing about ChatGPT is its fluency. It's very, very good at, at giving you what, what appears to be a conversation with another person. Um, and it's good at taking on the sort of characteristics you would expect from someone like, you know, an expert on medicine or whatever it is you're asking about. But its actual capacity to give right answers, that's that's actually not good, um, particularly if the if you're actually asking it something quite important or, or something complex or sophisticated. Um, and maybe that'll change over time, but that's actually a really, really difficult problem to solve. I mean, they've done incredibly well to get to this point. But if you care about the answer, um, if it has to be right, then we're not yet in that um, ball. So the, but the question is, is this just a beta product that we're live testing that will inevitably get better? Or are you saying the design principles behind it are flawed and it can never get to that point? I'm not saying either. It will not, but it's definitely not inevitable that it will get really good. Um, the, the, the difficulty that they, um, the scientific challenges that they have overcome that no one has overcome yet in, in making it super reliable um, are unsolved and there's not a clear pathway to solving it. There are a lot of very smart people and well-resourced organisations trying to solve those problems, but it's definitely just not the case that it is inevitable. Um, and so we don't know. I mean, maybe it'll be solved tomorrow, but, but most of the people that I've spoken with who are right at the cutting edge of this are saying, well, you know, 
we could be decades away from actually it being super reliable. Um, and that's, I think, I don't know, that's quite sobering to me. Um, so in the meantime, if we've got something that sounds plausible but that is not reliable, we need to really understand that, right? Um, because it's actually, other than in the game situation, it's not very often that all I want is a plausible answer. Um, I actually want a reliable answer most of the time if I'm if I'm asking a question that's important. Could it not be like the weather as well? You maybe want a plausible idea of what it'll be, but you can't actually predict the weather beyond a couple of days in advance. Like it's not as though it will be perfect. Maybe it's sort of you were saying, Pete, well, get us there, get us where. Like, what's the destination for a tool like this? Is it is it to be able to replace all human functionality? I, I, clearly not. I mean, mm. it gives the impression of that because they've created it in a human format. They've, you know, they had a working name of Sydney. You know, they've made it a chat function. It's not um they're deliberately trying, you know, there's a marketability in making it human-like, but maybe it's never actually, maybe we should be cautious about assuming what it's capable, what the idea of, of it at, at, at an optimised level will be because it's, you know, there's very clear limits that may never be surpassed. Which kind of goes back to, you know, the Corey Doctor Oda, who we were sharing some time with a few weeks ago, that, you know, the problem with artificial intelligence is that the intelligence is like something that, distorts the way we look at it um it's almost a marketing label you put on on top of it and i think that's a good pull up lizzie that um what is the end point and all the fears at the moment is that it gets more and more sophisticated and we basically outsource our need to think critically and hopefully um by defining things up front that's the best um defense against that notwithstanding that you know you can get some um, good research done pretty quickly Peter, sorry, one last point before we move on. I mean, I obviously, I I completely agree with everything that Ed said earlier, and this is not a reliable source of information because it's basically the internet, which is not a reliable source of information a lot of the times, basically, right? So, but I think one of the reasons why it's captured the world's attention is more because of the human-like nature of its answers. That is the step change to me more than anything else is that, you know, the, the, the really the novel stories that we started talking about at the start of this segment are really because it was it was like you were talking to another human and it's gotten really good at that. And there might be more narrow applications of that in specific apps where you just want to be feeling like you're talking to somebody and not a computer and not having the the mind-numbing experience that all of us have had in dealing with, you know, chatbots with corporates or, you know, with customer support lines and and, and, and those sort of things. That will probably get far better as a result of this, that's probably a really good thing. Um, but the accuracy piece, yeah, I mean, that's probably, a, that that feels like self-driving cars and it's just forever going to be 10 years away. Yeah, I, that is absolutely right. So when I talk about it being really fluent, that that is exactly what I mean. It's, it's about being lifelike. Um, and there's, there's a, if you're really interested in the science of it, there's this wonderful piece in the New Yorker that is rightly getting huge praise, um, that, that starts to delve into this. But partly what it, what it's about is that it's it sort of the, the way the science behind ChatGPT works is essentially getting these little hints about, um, bits of information that it needs to put together and it has to guess it, um, at, at, at how to put those things together. So, um, another analogy. Um, which gets you reasonably close to the science is it's like beginning a sentence and then the, what the computer's um, being asked to do is to finish that sentence. Uh, and so, you know, if you if you start a sentence, sentence like the weather is, right, um, up until very recently, most of those chatbots would, would end that with, you know, the weather is pineapples or the weather is chocolate cake or whatever. Like it would just be bleh, crazy stuff. Um, and, and, you know, Google spent hundreds of millions of dollars, for example, with, with those sorts of results before they started to get um, much more plausible answer. Now, um, it knows the pattern so much better. And so if you say, you know, something like the weather is, it'll say fine or rainy or whatever. It doesn't actually mean that it's fine or rainy, but it gets to Dan's point is it, it feels so much like having a conversation with human. And some of the time it will even be accurate, which is great. Um, but see that as a bonus, not um, likely to be, uh, you know, reliable because actually that's not what they've been optimising for. They've op- been optimising, they've been really, really focused on making it lifelike or, or fluent or, or human-like. I think we've exhausted chat GDP for this week, but I think it's moving so fast that we'll probably have something fresh to say in a fortnight.
let, let's change up and um, have a bit of a chat, Ed, about the project that you were working on over the summer that's now gone public um, for um, the new government, um, the review of the um, MyGov, uh, I guess, infrastructure and also the recommendations on how we can do personal identification better. Do you want to give us a little bit about the context and how you ended up in the room and what what's landed out the other side? Yeah. I kind of feel like a kid at school, you know, what did you do last summer? All the other kids say, oh, we went to the beach. You know, we had a really great time. I played with my siblings. I reviewed my gov. Um, it wasn't the best summer, to be honest. Uh, and anyone who has experienced my gov would probably know why. Um, it's it's not an amazing tool. But just, just to remind you, if you haven't had the fortune of um, spending much time on my gov, uh, what, it, what it's meant to do is to provide you with the entree into a whole bunch of federal government services. So if you want to access um, the tax office or Medicare or a range of other government services, you go through MyGov. And the experience is meant to be you're just dealing with the government. You don't even have to remember. You shouldn't at some point even have to remember, oh, gosh, is this a Medicare question or a tax question or whatever? You'll just deal with the government and your problem will be hopefully addressed or your your, your service will be provided. Um so what we were doing, you know, the first part of what we we're doing is just going, well, how close are we to that vision? Um, and we got some pretty robust responses that, to be honest, uh, I'm going to be very, very kind of transparent and match my own response. It's not amazing, right? Like it, it, it's pretty clunky. Um, it can be pretty frustrating. Um, the government has started to invest a bit more heavily in some of the back end. So some of those problems are reducing, but we're not yet at a point where I think many people would say it's a really, really good, neat service, like dealing with a really well-organized company. Um, so uh, we, we, we kind of did a couple of things. So we said, well, that, that needs to be fixed, right? Um, but then we, we, we kind of zoomed out a bit and we, we thought quite deeply about what MyGov actually represents and what it will represent very, very soon. So we're almost at a point now where most people, when they want to access a government service, they're doing it online. They're not actually doing it face-to-face um, anymore. Um, and, and, and we're already basically at that point. Um, and that's a really profound change, um, really profound. So that's the first point. The second point was um, if, if, if you see that as what it is, that's critical national infrastructure. Right? That's, that really matters. And so we were thinking back at other critical national infrastructure that Australia has made over the years. Um, and usually, there's something quite different. Um, usually, if, if you think about something like Snowy Hydro or Medicare or, or the railroads or even big, just normal roads, um, when the government was building those things, it knew that it was building critical national infrastructure. And that matters because when they were doing that, they were, they were actually turning their mind to some very important questions like, is everybody going to be able to access this particular railroad? Are we going to set prices at a level that only the rich will be able to travel by train. Um, similarly with Medicare, is it, is it going to be accessible to all? Is it going to provide a decent enough medical service to Australians that they're not going to have to worry about falling ill and then, you know, falling into poverty um, as, uh, you know, obviously in, in some other countries, that's a much, much bigger problem. And so, uh, but, but we haven't turned our mind to any of those questions when it comes to online um, service delivery. And so essentially what we were saying is this is critical national infrastructure, at least in reality. It hasn't been treated as critical national infrastructure. We need to reverse engineer things a little bit to to make up for that fact. And we need to improve the system to make sure that people's basic human rights are being protected, that it's fair, that it's equal, all of those principles that I think Australians generally are very supportive of um, are reflected in the system so in the law that governs it in um the writing instructions for the public service and and so on so so that was the 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 basic vision that we outlined and then we made 10 big recommendations to to help achieve that vision Oh, sad. Um, I sort of start getting an eye twitch when I think about a fully integrated um my gov uh because I just sort of um 
Well, the first thing that comes to mind, to be honest with you, is RoboDebt, because here's an example of two government departments integrating information. I mean, you know, reading between the lines, it looks like the ATO was asked to give over this information and Services Australia used it to facilitate an illegal scheme. Now, I get the point, of course, that you the scheme is illegal and shouldn't have been permitted to occur. But what also seems clear from the Royal Commission is that everybody was turning a blind eye to that. And so the consolidation and centralisation of government information feels to me like an enormous temptation for government to carry out similar schemes to, you know, once again claim kind of a bit of blindness, whether it's willful or otherwise, about the lawfulness of such a scheme. What can we do to avoid that kind of temptation being acted upon by government you know, is there ways to integrate into these systems, if you're going to go with a centralised system, um, protections that are actually robust, that aren't just legal, I suppose, that are also structural? Or is a centralisation inevitably going to attract this kind of conduct? Uh, it's hard sometimes thinking about robo-debt to feel that it's not the latter. Um, we confronted that head on and I really think I disagree with you about that last observation. So um, there are three key points we made. The first was things like RoboDebt happening now, right? It's the lack of any legal guardrails or effective legal guardrails that allows um, government agencies to share information inappropriately so that they can then cause um, Australians harm. Um, so so the, the, the problem is actually with the status quo. Um, but we do agree with you in the sense that we don't want to make it easier to do something that is bad but that might be quite difficult for the government to do that is bad um, and so we then said so point two was okay um, the, the legal guardrails are just really ineffective at the moment so we need much stronger laws right we need to say very very clearly that if you are delivering services that's all you're doing right you're not using it to crack down on someone for not paying their fine debts or, or whatever um, you're, you're doing it wholly and solely for that purpose. So you make the law really clear. Um, but we also know that only some people follow the law. Um, and so you actually have to design the system so that that's all that can be done, right? And so if you build the system in a way that it is impossible to share the information for some other purpose, um, or in, in fact, I mean, again, I don't want to get into the technical weeds here because it's a bit boring. But in fact, if um, if you if you build the system in a particular way, there, there is no information sharing between um, different government um, departments or agencies, um, and so so actually, it makes it it makes it impossible to 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 do the, the sorts of things that I think you and I would be worried about. Um, now, I realise that saying it is one thing and achieving it is another, um, and so that 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 I, I recognise is is quite a difficult kind of you know challenge to overcome. But but I do think it's a solvable problem, and I do think we should be like realistic about where what the status quo is, which is super problematic. Um, and um, I think if we just leave things as they are, people will continue to get bad service from government, and they will continue to be at risk of of of, of the sort of robo debt um, type situation. Ed, what about identity as part of all this? Now that must have, I assume, been a big part of what you were looking at through this process and as more and more Australians are uh, yeah. you know, using government services online, the risk here obviously is that if we're giving more and more information to the government, can the government be more trusted than say, yeah. um, you know, Optus or, or Medibank to keep that information safe because the information that they're going to be collecting will be as sensitive, if not more sensitive than what we saw with Medibank. What, what are the yeah. what protections can we, can we put in place here? I've gone on a bit of a journey here and there's no perfect solution, but I do think that there's a better solution than what we have now. Um, so at the moment, what we know is um, there's a whole bunch of companies and government agencies that are constantly collecting our information, right? Um, and so the most you know, obvious example of that is those requirements to collect 100 points of ID. Um, and so a bunch of companies and government agencies are collecting that all the time, right? So it's your passport, copies of your passport and your driver's license and so on, and they, they collect it and they keep it forever, um, or most of them do. And uh, that's really dangerous. Um, it's obviously dangerous for a couple of reasons. One, they can just misuse that information themselves, um, and that, that violates your privacy and a whole range of other rights. Um, and then secondly, um, it creates a whole series of honeypots for um, cyber criminals, as we saw with the Optus hack and the Medibank hack and a 
you know, so many others, um, you just find a weak point and then you can access a whole bunch of people's, um, you know, quite sensitive personal information and do all kinds of bad things with it. Um, so, so that's what we've got now. Um, it's a really, really bad system. It doesn't work, I don't think, even very well for companies, at least ethical companies that aren't trying to exploit people's personal information. They just have this big liability of, um, of, of information on their books. So is there a better way? Um, so what digital identity might allow you to do? So let's say you're opening a bank. So not now what you would have to do is you'd have to hand over, physically hand over your 100 points of ID. They take the photocopies of your passport and license and stuff. Um, and that's their way of knowing that Dan is Dan. That Dan is who he claims to be. But if you, all the, all the bank should really need to know is that you, it, it has been proven that Dan is who he claims to be. It shouldn't have to, actually collect all of that personal information. Um, if you can basically use a bit of tech on your phone, information doesn't go, go anywhere that, that that proves who you are. So imagine, you know, um, FaceTime or the, or the Android equivalent on your phone. It proves who you are and all that is sent to the bank um, is a token that says, yes, Dan has been authenticated as Dan. You can be confident that the guy standing before you trying to open a bank account is indeed Dan Stinton. Um, that, um, at least in principle, is a safer way of doing it. Now, I think the point that you're making, Dan, correctly, is but then aren't you shifting to the government, this massive honeypot of personal information, and they could exploit it, they could be the ones who are hacked. Um, and so that's where, that, that so yes, uh, in principle, that's right. But if you get that system right, so if you get the law um, absolutely strict on how it can be used and, and not used, but also if you get um, really, uh, really good design of the system so that you're not constantly pinging information back and forth. If you, if you have that process, for example, take place on your own mobile phone and it doesn't go anywhere else, or the only thing that goes out is a token that says Dan is who he claims to be, or we haven't been able to prove that Dan is who he claims to be, then then you're starting to actually get a, a better design system. Um, and so, so there, there's, this is pretty cutting edge stuff, um, but but we are seeing some, I think, positive positive movement in that space. So there's there's two there's sort of two concerns that arise. I mean, I, I absolutely take your point, Ed. This might be a better system. I mean, I don't think there is a perfect system, right? And and I should have mentioned, by the way, um, yeah. just for, for those of you that don't know, The Guardian has also been uh, subject to a, a data breach recently, uh, albeit on a much smaller scale. But so I've, I've experienced this firsthand. And look, it, 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 was, it largely came about because of information that we were required by law to collect on people and uh, a very sophisticated actor uh, found a way in. Um, I mean, that just demonstrates to me that the current system is not working, right? Because I can tell you now, the Guardian takes privacy and data security extraordinarily secu um, seriously, and we were still not able to, to keep this from happening. But the, the, the challenge that I think now with what you're proposing is that you, you're then effectively saying, okay, well, the lesser evil is give, trusting the government with this information. And that might be a better circumstance. That might be a better circumstance than, say, trusting a private company based in Silicon Valley versus a, a government you know, that is democratically elected controlling information. That's, that's probably better, but still not great. Um, but then the other part of it is if there is a vulnerability exposed and someone manages to create another profile of Dan Sinton or Ed Santo or whatever, um, the damage that could be done if the entire system relies on that single identity is far greater. So the risk might be lower, but the harm could be substantially higher. Is that fair? Yep. So in terms of the first point, I'm not sure it is because it is the government that already creates those passports and driver's licenses and everything. So if you get the system, if you get the design right, um, they're not collecting or holding any more personal information or even pinging the, that information back and forth any more than they already have to create that, that identity document in the first place. So, so I, think, I think that that point can be largely addressed. Um, the second point is true. So if you, if, if, with all of the best design features, if, if some company kind of finds or, or some group of criminals find a way to hack into everybody's phones um, and instead of it just that information staying on your phone, they find some way of kind of extracting that information, getting it out of your, your phone and, and sending it, you know, and, and using it for nefarious purposes, you've got a problem. I completely agree with that. Um, 
but I think that that is a less, um, a much less likely problem than is the reality, which is a whole bunch of companies. I wasn't going to mention the Guardian, but you did. Um, you know that 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 actually uh, th- th- these are the good companies, right? Like the ones that that, as you say, take privacy and cybersecurity seriously. Um, even those companies are finding themselves sort of no match for the most sophisticated cyber criminals. So again, I kind of come back to this idea that the cyber, that the status quo isn't isn't protecting us very well. Um, that doesn't mean that any other solution is going to be better, but but it does mean that I think we should at least be open to another solution that tries to address head on some of those um, vulnerabilities that are, that aren't going away. Right? Uh, we, we know that you know the Guardian can be hacked, but so can a whole bunch of other less sophisticated or perhaps less uh, more cavalier companies. So from what I'm hearing, Ed, it's not so much a giant government database holding my ID. It's more a bit in that world of the Tim Berners-Lee Web 3.0 where everyone yep. has their own pod of information. Am I hearing yep. that right? And You're hearing that right. Is that, um, and so are you working within those frameworks or is that sort of yep. more? Well, yeah, that, that, that was the argument that I fought over the summer and I think we won. I mean, that, that was what the um, report came up with. It's... It, it makes it hard, right? So the, the, the downside of this is, let's say you're the police force and you kind of go, well, we want to, we actually don't want to use it to provide services. That's what we're all about. We're, we're, we're there to fight crime. Um, and so, you know, this would stop us from, from doing that. Um, I accept that. Um, in fact, I would prefer that, frankly. Um, and so that's, that's the argument that, that at least our report, um, says should should win the day that that you have less functionality but you keep that information tighter and more secure much more secure um and you stop those secondary uses um and and it, it, just to explain why I'm, I'm not you know i'm not trying to um, denigrate the police but what we do know is what they tend to do so for example with the metadata laws right you know they, they said well, we, we only want to collect this information to fight the worst terrorist offenders the person with the ticking time bomb that's going to blow up all of a big city um, of course, when you actually look at what they really do, they didn't find anyone like that using metadata. Um, but what they did do was that they chased literally thousands and thousands of Australians for for parking debts, you know, that, those sorts of things. And so you go, well, you know, that's that's not to me a proportionate response. So, Lizzie, what do you need to hear for it to get your tick of approval, or is that a bridge too far? Uh, I mean, I think there's a, still a bit of a way to go on this, right? I mean, I think, yeah, I, there's some things I like about it. I mean, I, I hate receiving that email that you've got a message on um, MyGov, for example, but I also appreciate that's the correct way to do it rather than emailing people directly. You know, like I think there's some utility in these systems being an educational service as well into how, as to how best to manage your security. And in previous examples, dealing with government departments, they haven't always complied with best practice for that um, that kind of accessing of information or verification of identity. And so I can see a real utility in ele- elevating the standard for all government departments and that being an educative function for people who use it as well. But, you know, I, I guess part of the problem with government and data is that we have to keep constantly being vigilant about how they use it because even um, with the best intentions in terms of the other side of the coin, like how, what what kind of capabilities it creates for government. I can understand that there may there may be certain limits that we impose in the beginning, but then they get eroded over time, you know. So there's a, there's a whole, um, it's more a journey than a destination, I suppose. I think how this um, system, it's, you know, it's clearly a project for this government and they're clearly doing the best to at least start out on a, on a reasonable footing. And I'm, I'm glad get, that Ed has been involved in helping to design it. But I think that shouldn't um, necessarily give us comfort over time that it shouldn't be scrutinised and, um, you know, we have to find ways to stop misuse of data by government over time and and expect that that kind of temptation will always be there that I was talking about at the start. So, yeah, I mean, will it ever get my tick of approval? Maybe not, but maybe that's the point. I'm here to be the person that's always throwing stones at it to try and um, and act as a deterrent from, you know, the, the future Stuart Roberts of the world, I suppose. You are the deterrent of future Stuart Roberts of the world. And if that's um, if that's a job description, I reckon it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a noble one. Um, Ed, finally, and um, to wrap up this discussion. So for those of us on the call, how as a result of this, are our lives going to change in the short term? I think it'd be really good if 
um, we don't have to hand over those 100 points of ID um, with every sort of significant interaction with a company or a government agency because every time you do that, you create a new risk. Um, I've just literally, you know, had my credit card skimmed again. It's the second time in six months. It's just a pain in the neck. Um, and then you have to wait for whatever those charges were in Mexico City to come back onto my, you know, into my account, which may never happen, right? Like I'm hoping they do, but it may never happen. I never got the enjoyment out of what must have been an extraordinary feast in Mexico City. Um, so, look, I, I think that would be a, a really significant change um, and I think a positive change. But but I do want to kind of agree with Lizzie's point. Look, um, you, you know, in, in, in some other countries where they've gone down this road, they've gone, you know, w- the one thing we know is we're, we're going to make mistakes. And so we actually need to kind of, uh, I don't know, encourage um, and maybe even incentivize people to find what those mistakes are and tell us as soon as possible. Um, so there's, you know, you, you'll have come across the term black hat and white hat. You know, you, you want people to basically um, find those those um, weak, weak points that you know and so you can fix them. Um, so I think that's a really important part of it. On that note, we might wind up this discussion. Guys, thanks. It's been great to be back in the virtual room again. Um, Dan, Lizzie, great to have you back. I don't know if there's any um, things that people need to be putting in their calendar or looking forward to over the next fortnight in the way of um, activity from Digital Rights Watch, Lizzie? No, but I do think if you're interested in putting in a sub, it is the 31st of March that it's due. And I, I agree with that. It doesn't have to be a long thing. Um, you can just write to the Attorney General and tell him you support bold privacy reform because you're interested in it. But I think also if you are interested in um, participating in something more substantive, we can potentially put something together. I think there's you know a lot of scope for that. Um, so I'd encourage people to get involved in that over the course of the next month. Excellent. And Dan, just keep... Keep reading The Guardian, and um, if people aren't subscribed, um, it's very easy to, right? Uh, yes, we're just going to spend the next fortnight producing the world's best journalism uh, for everyone to read, <laughs> so I'd encourage you to keep doing that. I, I should mention this, by the way. We are preparing for our 10th birthday in Australia, which is uh, on May 27th, and there's a whole bunch of big things planned around that. Wow. So um, doesn't feel like uh, that. Yeah, it's, it's gone quick. Well... Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but anyway, we've uh, we've we're, we're coming up to our tenth birthday. We're gonna we're gonna make a, a bit of a celebration around it. So uh, I'll have more to say on that uh, maybe next time, uh, if not if not the one after. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live in a virtual town hall on Friday, March three. If you'd like to sign up. To future events, go to centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal Land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.